Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that connects people with herpes to mental health resources as needed. Not to say everybody with herpes needs a therapist. I mean, to be honest, I think everybody could benefit from a therapist, but specifically given the trajectory of how this whole thing started with people who wanted to end their lives after their herpes diagnosis, um, I would say that this is in line with there being a need for something like this. And so much to the point where there is now a survey that you can go online and take that is going to reflect 2021 data of people who are living with HSV. This can be found at the Something Positive for Positive People website, www.spfpp.org. It may be up as late as July 1st, uh, but the goal is to get 1,000 participants so that this can be used as a decent amount of uh, quantitative data to reflect the qualitative data of what I've collected over the last four years just through this podcast in itself. So if you want to get involved in doing something to combat stigma, this is your way of doing so. It's an anonymous survey. Your identity is protected. And it just basically has four pillars of the survey, which are how you were diagnosed and your interactions with the healthcare professional, how you navigate symptoms and treatments, how you disclose, date, and interact with other partners, and then representation of identities and dealing with the mental health aspect of it. So it takes about 25 minutes at the most. It's all multiple choice and uh, check the box. And this will be information that we're going to be able to use moving forward to do some really great things with. And it'll be available on the Something Positive for Positive People website as well. So go to the website and I believe I titled it Take the 2021 Survey. And it's only for people who are living with HSV. All right. Now that we got that out the way, we have a really, really cool podcast episode that's coming up. And it's a topic that we've not gone into really lately at all. I think the last several episodes have been uh, really community focused and a little bit heavy. So I'm excited to have this lighthearted ish conversation here with Lauren. Lauren, how you doing? Doing well today, Courtney. How are you? I am fine. Other than yesterday, um, I wanted to make a fancy steak dinner for date night, and I ordered groceries online through Instacart for the first time, at least to my knowledge. I know they sneakily get to you through other stores or whatnot, but they left the mushrooms, and that messed up my uh, spinach and mushrooms thing. The whole steak night experience was ruined because I didn't have mushrooms. Other than that, I'm doing all right. I actually, you know, I, this can turn into a Courtney episode real easily. So I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to put too much uh, of myself into your podcast episode. But I appreciate you asking me that. <laughs> I believe you need mushrooms for steak as well. So. <sighs> right. I'm, up, I'm upset for you. Thank you. Thank you. But the good news is I do have leftovers. So once we finish this recording, I'm going to have steak and eggs for breakfast. And damn, I didn't roast the potatoes. So I can't have like hash brown type potatoes. I mashed them. So let me stop. All right. Now I'm getting hungry. Anyways, <laughs> um, you and I met. You shared a disclosure story with me. Is that correct? Yes. 
We yeah. could let's let's start there. Let's start there because we have a lot that we can talk about, and I want to be mindful of your time, and then make sure that this is also something that's useful for the audience too. Um, so yeah, let, let's start there with your disclosure story. Okay, sounds good. Um, I was uh, diagnosed about a year, a, right exactly a year ago, um, with HSV two. Happy anniversary. Couple more weeks, Memorial Day weekend, of course, that happened when I was out camping without access to running water or anything like that. So it was not the ideal time to have your first uh, outbreak, but uh, it happened. So yeah, we're coming up on one year. Thank you. Um, so yes, it was obviously earth shattering, and, and folks listening that are dealing with uh, HSV diagnosis or you know just dealing with uh, symptoms of it understand that's it's, it's really difficult. Um, I started disclosing to friends first and that was easy because I knew you know I know my friends are supportive and very loving and I knew they would help me feel like it wasn't that big of a deal but the I kind of got this idea in my head like I would never actually just be able to like date casually Um, and being a, a very sexual person I like casual sex I like all that so I didn't necessarily think that was gonna work out for me but I had a friend who kind of convinced me to just get on Tinder because why the hell not? Um, I didn't expect anything to go well. I, I've been on those sites before and I never really found connection. I like to have it be more organic. But I met somebody that I was instantly drawn to just over messages. It was like we just clicked. The conversation flowed. Um, I could tell he was a really, a really safe person. You know, he had like mental health awareness in his and in, in his biography. So. You know, I was kind of drawn to that anyways. It was a, a multi-layer disclosure because of the fact that we are uh, polyamorous. And so um, I disclosed to him via text message as we started sexting. And I um, I don't like the, the way that I approach this, but I'm still learning. It's still new for me. So I kind of did the, you know, we were getting all sexy and like sending pictures and videos back and forth. And it was getting really hot. And then we were talking about, oh, when can we, you know, do this for real in person? And I kind of said, well, you might not really want to sleep with me after all because, you know, I have herpes. Again, I don't like the way I approach that. I don't recommend people to approach that. But this was my very first time kind of being in this situation outside of, you know, friends and people that I'm close with. And I did the self-deprecating, you know, really making the stigma probably worse. But his response was like, oh, yeah, no big deal. You know, the last woman that I dated had it, and I didn't get it. Um, We were together for years and just made it, like, so easy and and so great, and I was just incredibly relieved. It was, like, a beautiful moment, and I'm like, okay, I can still be who I am. I can still be in, in a relationship. I can still have sex with people that I just meet if I want to. I just have to be, you know, honest and forthcoming like that. So, but, so we had sex. It was amazing definitely peaked a lot of my kink and sort of BDSM interest that I have played with and dabbled with, but not really gone into. So not only am I super into this guy on an emotional and intellectual level, but like physical and that sexual connection was off the charts insane. Um, so, so, so happy. That happened a couple of times. We were getting comfortable with each other sexually, but there was a conversation that I was avoiding, and it was because I we're polyamorous, and I know he's dating another woman who has a primary partner. And so I knew, yes, I had disclosed to him, 
And I had done that, but I knew that I needed to make sure that he had talked to her. And I needed to make sure that the folks on the other side were also aware and consenting to a sexual relationship with him, basically. And that took me a little bit longer. Again, something that I'm not proud of. I probably should have done that at the very beginning. Um, but I was kind of like, I've done the bare minimum. I've done what I need to do. I'm moving on. Um, and finally, like we had had sex a couple times and, um, you know, we were chilling afterwards one time, smoking a blunt on the porch. And I just said, look, I've been avoiding talking about this because I don't want to always bring it up necessarily, but this is important for like our sexual health. And I need to know if she is aware of my status. And he was like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I talked to her about it the very first time. And I was like, Oh, and it just, it was like another layer of, Oh my gosh, there are people out there that are good people that get it, that understand the ethics around disclosure and stuff. So I was just so relieved. And I went and sat on his lap and I was like, you're amazing. And he said, look, there's two types of people. There's people who know about it. or there's, He said, there's people that, that are freaked out about it. And there's people who just know about it. And that meant the world to me because I, I, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't, it's not like you have to be overly educated on it. It's not like you have to know a bunch of people with herpes to just, you know, have a little bit of understanding about it, that it's not that big of a deal, that there's ways to be safe, that it's a lot more common, um, and that mostly the stigma is the worst part about it. I just, he just nailed the head, nailed, he just nailed it on the head with that comment, and it just was really, honestly, a beautiful moment for me. That's not all he nailed that made it a beautiful moment for you. Oh, <laughs> I had to. Uh, was this your first disclosure since your diagnosis? Um, to to somebody, no, I disclosed to friends and told them, and some of those male friends ended up, I ended up having sex with them. Um, it felt like, oh, they'll have sex with me. Like they're still cool about it. I was so much more afraid of like the strangers. So it was my first disclosure to somebody that I did. I, I didn't know how they were going to react. I knew my close male friends, like I knew that they were going to be cool about it. Um, and then when they were also cool to sleep with me afterwards, I was like, oh, okay. For a while, I was like a little, for a while, I was a little concerned that I was just kind of doing that because it's easy. Um, and I did. And I might have maybe messed up one and a half of those friendships by doing so. So I'm not, I'm also not really proud of that. That wasn't the right thing to do, but again, it's a, it's a process. It's, it's a little bit of a learning process. So he was the first person I disclosed to. I was like a new partner. We didn't really know each other that well. We hadn't invested a bunch of time in each other. So easily could have been like, okay, I'm good. No, thanks. And that's, you know, I was really trying to prepare myself mentally for that. Yeah. Now, I would imagine that there, the level of comfort in having sex with a friend, someone that you know, someone you have rapport with, someone that uh, feels safe, that can be a pleasant experience until it's no longer on the table, right? So can I ask what made it weird or what made it... Um, what made it end? Because I'm thinking that maybe it was you realizing, oh, I'm only doing this because it's easy. I shouldn't have done that. I don't like this person in a sexual way. But it was nice to have that need met while it lasted. Yeah, I know. You're, what you just said is exactly sort of what happened. It, you know, The nature of our friendship with, with one of these men I've been really close friends with for like seven or eight years. 
um, and we have a very deep relationship and it's been a really beautiful emotional relationship, but never crossed the line physically. Um, and, and I never wanted it to because of the fact that what we had was really great and, you know, it can just change the nature of your friendships. And sometimes like I'm, again, very sexual person. I like talking about sex, but I don't necessarily like the expectation or the thought that like, there's going to be this expectation of now our friendship has become about sex. And it kind of did in, in both of the situations. Um, and, and then my, my wanting to talk and wanting to reach out to them and wanting to see them sort of changed because I just felt like it was going to be, it was going to be about like, there was going to, there was going to be an expectation of sex. And to be honest at that time, I was only maybe a couple months into my diagnosis and I was disconnected from my body. Um, I wasn't to be really honest. I think maybe I had one orgasm over the course of like, you know, having sex 10 times with these people. Like I was just not in a place where I was even ready to experience pleasure. So it felt like I was using them a little bit maybe to try to get myself back to that place. But I'm the only person who was ultimately able to get myself back to that place. Um, and my friendships have changed a little bit because of that. Like, I think they'll still, they'll still be there again, especially one of them is like super meaningful to me, but it's just changed. It's changed. Yeah. Well, I can, I understand that. And I'm curious to know how the conversation went. Was it like a, I disclose and then, or I'm sorry, you disclose. And then they were like, oh, well, I'd still sleep with you. And you were like, oh, really? Or was there more of a boundaries conversation and discussion about what it could look like, how it could impact the friendship? Was there any of that? It started out with pretty much exactly what you described. Um, I knew that both of these male friends of mine prior to any diagnosis were interested in taking that step anyways. I never did because I didn't want to change what I, what we had with them. So I kind of knew that there was an interest in a sexual relationship from their end anyways. So when I disclosed, you know, they were there for me as a, as a friend essentially. Um, and then it did turn into, well, you know, I'm not worried about that or I wouldn't be. Um, and then I kind of made the first move actually. So it, it kind of was a little bit of both. There was a period of time between, it wasn't like immediate disclosure. Like I, I bawled to them, you know, I cried. They were there to comfort me and they, they were true friends in that moment and they still are, they are still good people and good friends. But then it kind of slowly became, well, I mean, I'm not really worried about it. And that's when I, when I basically, I think because of the herpes did something that I had consciously decided not to do prior. I didn't want to lose my mountain biking buddy friend. I didn't want to lose my friend who's also a father. Um, not a lot of my friends are parents. Like we have important connections and things, but uh, so I tried then to, as, uh, as like the, um, you know, experiences kept going on, we kept having sex. I was like sending them Insta. I send them your Instagram. I sent, um, a couple Instagram accounts. Like I wanted to be able to have a conversation about the sexual health side of it. Um, I wanted to be able to talk about it and I just got the sense from both of them that they wanted to pretend that it wasn't really a thing. They didn't really want to talk about it. Um, you know, and then we struggled a little bit too, because, you know, they were using condoms and they were having struggling, like either getting or staying hard. And so what happened a couple times was I sunk like deeper into my shame thinking that it was me and that they're, they're thinking about herpes while they're trying to 
you know, get aroused and they're not aroused anymore. And, you know, it's me. And intellectually, I knew that wasn't the case. I knew they were attracted to me. I knew they wanted this to happen. But it, it that experience, I wish I would have just been a little bit slower with myself and more thoughtful because I wasn't ready. I had, a, I was very disconnected from my body. I was still kind of putting the shame and stigma on myself at the time, misreading what was going on with their bodies, the fact that they weren't used to using condoms. It, it makes sense that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to get hard. But so, you know, I, I kind of cut it off after, after a little bit of time, because it just felt like the wrong thing. And I just focused on honestly being more connected to my body and loving myself and having some actual orgasms. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel like you were taken advantage of? You mentioned that you came to them and you were crying and you were weeping and just like in this super vulnerable place. But the fact that you said you made the first move makes me think otherwise. However, there's a little bit of a gray area there, given that they knew that you were in a vulnerable place. Like, I would kind of feel like maybe they were just lurking or waiting on something like this to happen. Um, I think one of them maybe a little bit. Um, one of them maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, but the other one, no. It was, it was something that, honestly, if I'm being really honest, I kind of thought would happen eventually with us because we were so emotionally attached to each other and attracted but he's he's married so that was kind of what kept us from doing it so i crossed a lot of lines i wasn't really listening to myself oh wait wait was, he wasn't polyamorous mm-hmm. Ooh, all right <laughs> so that's the other so there's so many layers courtney you know, you know before, like so she obviously is being but his wife is being cheated on with somebody and he's sleeping with somebody that has herpes like that ultimately like there was just that was another layer to it like part of the reason why I wasn't sleeping with him before was because he's married and now I'm sleeping with him and and she's not in the know this is not consensual for her so that was another piece but like I just I can't do this anymore like didn't feel right for so many different reasons um and I didn't I didn't want our friendship to get totally ruined over it or his wife to find out or his kids to find out like it would have been it would have been a disaster so I think really I was grappling for connection and acceptance externally with people that I felt safe but there was a reason why I hadn't done that prior to my herpes diagnosis because it wasn't really what I wanted and it wasn't the right thing in my mind so I spent several months doing that yeah and when you received your diagnosis, it seems like perhaps you felt options became limited to the point where the lines of ethics had to have become cloudy in order for you to get your needs met, in order for you to experience connection. You had to compromise, and that meant compromising your values as well. Uh, yes wholeheartedly yes to that that's exactly what i was doing okay now with the disconnecting from your body or feeling disconnected from your body and then using the relationships around you as a way of experiencing connection was there ever a point at which you realize okay this is not doing me any good this is doing more harm than it is healing did you hit that point? And I'm curious to know what it looked like while you were in it before you made the decision to stop doing the things that you were doing. 
Um, I absolutely did did hit that point. Yes, um, I think the I was just stacking on. You know, I had the, this sort of dealing with the diagnosis and feeling disconnected from my body was, you know, a stressor um, a stressor for me. And then I was doing things that were adding more and more stress on top of it. Maybe it was to avoid dealing with that stressor and to avoid and just <laughs> pile other things onto my plate that I could focus on fixing or dealing with. But it ultimately, like that plate just became too full. Um, and I wasn't I wasn't proud of myself. And I was, I was, I was trying to, I was doing the mental gymnastics of how can I not be vulnerable? Um, how can I avoid being rejected? I even like, I tried to do a ton of, I'm also bisexual. So I was like, oh, I'll just date women. Maybe you can't transmit it with women. So I did a bunch of research to try to figure that out. There's not a lot of good research on female to female transmission, by the way. But ultimately I stopped there. I wasn't going to find a woman that I could have sex well. with and not disclose to. Well, I did, I did not do that. <laughs> shameless plug but, here. So the, the thing about that is we do get caught up in the same sex transmission rates. But when we look at everything that's out there, it's genital to genital transmission rate. So if herpes is a nerve condition that's transmitted by skin to skin contact, I don't think transmission rates necessarily are the issue. It's more about the type of sex that you're having. So are toys involved or is there skin to skin contact directly? Right. So taking that into consideration, that's something that we included on the survey that you can go to at www.spfpp.org and it will be linked in this episode's show notes. So take the survey and hopefully, ooh, I should not have put that in the middle of this episode because by the time somebody hears it, the survey can be done. <laughs> so it's either done or you can take it. All right. I think July 1st is hopefully when we want to get those thousand participants. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Um, I will certainly be taking the survey. Oh, yes. Thank you. We need more representation, especially of people who are non-monogamous and aren't heterosexual. Um, so, yeah, please do. All right. Anyway, so, yeah, so you thought say, just dating girls and dating women, it would make it go away. Uh, yeah. And then I realized that's not true. Again, I was just catching myself doing all these mental gymnastics, trying to avoid what I really needed to just deal with and accept. I had to, I had to accept myself and and be OK with, um, you know, being rejected. So I think I just kind of hit a point where I was really not proud of what I was doing, what I was, you know, trying to do. And, um, I took a, a step back from everyone and everything and just spent, um, spent a lot of time alone. Yeah. Now, when you spent that time alone, what was going on for you? Was it a dark time or was it a time of healing for you? I would be lying if I said there were not moments of darkness. Um, I, sort of suffer from a little bit of the self-harm tendencies and um, I haven't done it in a really long time and I didn't I didn't do it but I was really close to it like I stood at the pharmacy looking at the razor blades for 30 minutes wanting to buy them you know what I mean think like I got I got dark in terms of getting back to that mental state of wanting to do it but I didn't so I'm proud of myself for that but those feelings came up again like the know the self-harm the the wanting to substitute emotional pain um and self-hatred for some physical pain it was to me that's just easier but um i didn't do that so i'm proud that i didn't get there so there were moments of darkness but on the flip side of that 
I, I feel actually like there was more, a lot more healing and this is obviously during pandemic. So, um, I was kind of forced to be alone anyways, but I, um, for, I noticed that after my diagnosis and going through that with friends, trying to have sex and trying to do the mental gymnastics of how do I have a life that I want to have without having to actually put myself out there during that time, um, I was avoid, I realized I was avoiding the mirror. I never wanted to look at myself in the mirror. I, I just didn't like myself. I, I wasn't there. And so I, I did mirror work um, where I would just sit in front of the mirror and stare at myself and tell myself, I love me. I, I love you. I love you. Um, I started masturbating a lot more and like really almost like take, taking my time, like using toys, almost like making love to myself that rather than just like getting to the point, you know, because I can make myself come in like 10 seconds. But I was taking my time and loving myself and watching myself in the mirror and feeling sexually connected to myself. And then the icing on the cake were the psychedelics, uh, psilocybin and LSD that I did a number of times, maybe half a dozen times over the course of maybe like four times in the course of six months or so. Um, and for me, that was as powerful of like 10 years of therapy just condensed and it's like your mind kind of cuts through the bullshit um the self-shame the stigma the ideas that are you know the feelings that you have that aren't truth necessarily um and it was almost as if i in these um i guess what's dosing sessions whatever we want to call it like I just felt an abundance of love from myself to myself um, and just and just, just see it clearly for what it is. So that was that was part of that was pretty much my healing journey and my connection back to my body. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you started masturbating and that you can make yourself come in like 10 seconds before your diagnosis. Did you not masturbate? masturbated since I can remember. Oh, okay. But I, I didn't. I wasn't really looking at myself in the mirror. I wasn't really touching myself for several months after the diagnosis. I was I was just in an avoidant mindset, completely avoidant mindset. Um, yeah, so it was just getting back to actually masturbating, but it, doing it in a way that was so much more just like giving to myself. Again, like it felt like I was having sex with myself, like intimate sex with myself as opposed to just getting off. Mm. So, and that was new for me. I mean, I imagine that if you had advice for someone who had been diagnosed and maybe disconnected from their bodies, you'd probably tell them go fuck themselves. <laughs> it worked in my case. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the title of this podcast. It might not get a lot of listens considering the explicit nature of this one, but I said it was going to be a good one, so that like might be that. the title. Unless you say some really deep, thought-provoking thing throughout here that makes me go, oh, that'll be a better title. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I think I'm sold on that one, Courtney. I think that's, I think that's it. We can't go back from that. It's too good. So what's interesting is, uh, as a polyamorous person, that you have the opportunity for multiple lovers without there being conflict um, of a partner keeping you from doing that as in toxic monogamy culture whatever but yet it was the masturbating the connection to yourself 
that became your healing process. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about that, where your interactions with other people, obviously pandemic, um, so you're not meeting a lot of people as you probably would have been, but do you find that you got more healing out of um, connecting to yourself in that way than you did having a supportive loving partner that you felt safe exploring sexually with who validated your uh, identities that you were still sexy that you're still lovable and all of those types of things um i think for me personally the the independent journey was more powerful um i'm also not in a situation where i had a partnership like that and my last relationship of three years ended right before the pandemic started so I didn't have that person necessarily that was that was there again I tried to take two friends that I've never had a sexual interest in and make them that then they couldn't get hard then I was like it was almost like when other people were involved it was actually harder um I I think I have some trust issues as well so you know I for me, I'm a super independent person as it is. And I think it was actually really important that it was, it was all me. Yeah. But had I been, you know, had I been in a loving relationship and I don't know how I got it. Like it came out of nowhere is the other thing I didn't say. So I have no, like, it wasn't like a new partner. And then two weeks later, whatever, like it literally came out of nowhere. I hadn't been with anybody in a while. It was pandemic. So um, I lost my train of thought here, it's but okay. yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was me and, and it had to, I think it had to be that way for me. I, I had to get to that point where I accepted it. I loved myself and therefore I could be making the smart and ethical decisions that were right for my heart and my body moving forward as opposed to trying to we wiggle my way into a situation that I knew deep down wasn't right or wasn't for me. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I ask because there are multiple ways to go about uh, healing. Some of us heal best through relationships. Some of us heal best uh, in our own headspace and with ourselves. And I come across people who actively avoid being alone because it's so hard for them. It's troubling for them. They know that they don't need to be alone with their thoughts that they're having about themselves. And to receive minimal validation from another person is something that means so much to them that they're willing to endure a lot of uh, damaging, harmful, toxic, shaming um, repercussions, I guess you would say. You know, just giving an example someone who has herpes, you know, wouldn't want to go through the process of listening to this podcast, journaling for themselves, spending time alone, going off and doing things that they like to do, or even just touching themselves and masturbating. They will put a lot of energy into trying to find a partner or someone who can validate their sexual identity that they feel that they have lost because of their herpes diagnosis or for other reasons. I'm learning that it's never really just about the herpes, but to see someone, to see you, someone who could have gone out and gotten that validation from other people and then you did and was like, you know, 
I think I need to do this on my own. And for that to have been more successful, I really believe there's something here to highlight for someone who's hearing this for the first time and maybe resonates with the idea of, oh, you know, I might have messed up a really good friendship that I had, or I might not be operating from the most ethical place. Because I'll share, you know, from my own experience, uh, I was hooking up with someone who, while she wasn't married, was in a relationship with someone for a while. And the mental gymnastics that we can do, my justification was, oh, she told me she's not monogamous, but apparently her partner is not <laughs> non-monogamous. And that was the justification for, well, she told me this, so that's what I'm going with. And the... um whole thing about you know having partners who couldn't get and stay hard with a condom um i experienced that early on in my diagnosis with not disclosing like i couldn't be fully present and i think that that's something to be said in a partner person who can't be fully present there's perhaps something there with uh some discomfort with something it may not even be you it could be something that's going on in their heads that is completely unrelated. Maybe they think they left the stove on at their house and they're like, oh my God, I think I left the stove on. That's a really big deal to some people, you know? But uh, yeah, I, I, I got sidetracked there and way off topic, but bringing it back, I just want to iterate here that this type of thing happens to people. Uh, it happens where we begin to blur the lines of our own ethics and values because we feel that our options have become so limited. And the reality is we have seemingly unlimited options. We just have to be willing to go through the ups and downs potentially that can come from putting ourselves out there, from pursuing what it is that we want. If we got everything we asked for and wanted, nothing would be worth having. We wouldn't work for anything. So the work, working, looks like um, developing your own sense of self-worth, figuring out what it is that you want, having opportunities for self-discovery, self-exploration, and self-expression. And that's what it seems like you were able to do through your trial and error and then reaching into the depths of your own self, your own identity in order to come through the other side, having done the work, because that's what doing the work is. And that's what it looks like. Yeah, you mentioned journaling, too, and I had forgotten about that, but that was actually a big part of um, spent a lot of time just writing out my feelings and stuff. But yeah, that's that's exactly what what happened. I think I'm in a pretty good place now, but I have to recognize like this is uh, this is the first person, the first sort of situation I've been in that it's it's positive. So I, I dating is a quite a whirlwind, and you know. Yeah, I distracted you. <laughs> um, the. Okay, so we we've gotten through that. I'm loving that you're in a good place for yourself now. Um, there is a lot of uh, curiosity from people who are non-monogamous 
around how to navigate dating as someone who is non-monogamous simply because there's not much data or representation of people who have multiple partners who are living with an STI. I know that I can speak from my own experiences and I can speak to the experiences of others I've spoken to, but uh, you're probably one of the first people who has mentioned uh, having to disclose your status, not only to your direct partner, but to their partners. So what is it that makes you feel responsible for what your partner should be responsible for? I, what makes me feel responsible for what you're saying really he should probably feel responsible for? Yeah, that, that, yes. Yeah. Um, I think it just, if, if, for the, you know, for the first couple of weeks when I hadn't talked to him about her and her partner, it just was weighing on me. Um, and I think I just realized that while I agree and while I was sleeping with a married man, my mindset was, well, I didn't take a vow. What do I have to do? I don't care about her. I didn't take a vow. She didn't ask. Yeah. I'm not that, that's actually not me. Like I'm actually very deeply, deeply caring person who wants to do nothing but good in this world. So just knowing, just wondering like if, so I I think it's, I love when he talks to me about what they do together. Like I think I get really turned on and I really love that. Like it really gets me going. So I'd like ask him questions and he'd start talking about like their sex life and just details and everything. And I was loving it. But in the back of my mind, I'm still like, is she, does she know about me? Is she consenting to be in this as well? And that just kept coming up. And, and ultimately it was like this, I am not able to fully immerse in my pleasure. So maybe it's selfish because I want no distractions going on when we're doing sexy things. I want to focus only on that. I love that stuff. And that's how, you know, I think you reach like the the most pleasure is not being preoccupied with other things. And I found myself like, even though things were like really hot and stuff, I was still preoccupied with, does she know? And and thinking, what if, the what if? I think that um, it's very safe to have sex with her because I think it's, I don't think anyone should be worried every time that they're gonna get something. But that's for that's for everyone uniquely individually to make the the adjustment on so or the assessment on. So I just needed to know that he had talked to her about it. And when he told me yes, like I just this huge weight came came off of me. Um, how would I do it differently? Because again, this is all sort of new to me, and being in the polyamorous world and stuff, I need to kind of figure out. If I were to do it differently, I think I would have asked him a lot sooner about it. Um, I don't think I did it terribly or anything, but I I would have asked him a little bit sooner. Um, Also, it opened up a conversation about our sexual health in general, because I, I also realized I didn't ask him what his status was. I just disclosed mine. If you recall, I said, well, you might not even want to sleep with me anymore because of this. Ashamed, I'm very ashamed that I did that, but I think we've all probably been there and, you know, not handled it appropriately, but that's what I did. Um, and I, instead of saying, you know, here's my status, what's yours? Um, I never had asked. So in that same conversation when, when I was asking, well, does she know? Um, 
about about my HSP status and he said yeah I said by the way like what's yours like when's the last time you got a screening and he was like honestly it, I haven't since pandemic I used to do it every six months and he went out the next day and got screened um, and I thought being able to talk about it and be open about it is actually I have found to actually be really sexy like I'm more turned on by him I am more interested in him and I like him even more now knowing that he talked to the other woman about it knowing that he is like he takes his sexual health seriously so many people think that they don't have herpes just because they've never had an outbreak or they've never been with somebody that has told them they have herpes and it's so infuriating to me to hear people say like well I don't have it I want to be like well, you don't think you have it but I'm not going to launch into some education about about the virus and stuff so it's actually been a really positive experience and I look forward to in the future with these other situations, just coming, like just being really upfront about it and asking other people too, well, what's your status? What's your experience with this? And when's the last time you were screened? It's, it, it's a, it creates a really safe environment that especially in polyamory and especially when you're exploring kind of some kink and some BDSM stuff, like that's really important to feel really safe in. Um, and having, I think, opening up the dialogue early about sexual health is, some, is, is really a powerful way to assess whether somebody that you're going to be with sexually is safe or not. Mm -hmm. When you began to get concerned about his partner's health, it seems like it was as a result of you all sharing and him telling you about her and what she did. It almost feels like there was this secondary connection being built. So I'm wondering if he hadn't talked about her at all, would you have been concerned if he had just been hooking up with someone, let's say a one night stand or something that's casual or purely sexual, or even with partners that you didn't know about, would you want for him to have told other partners that he's having sex with someone who has herpes, regardless of him not having tested positive yet? It's a really good question. Um, I hadn't thought of that. It's hard to say, like my gut, I feel like if it's just a one night stand and I, and I, would I even know about it? Well, I mean, if, here's... We're going, if we're going, if we're going fully, like, what is the right thing for everybody to do in this situation, I would I would absolutely want him to disclose that. But I also don't, I don't necessarily expect it in that situation. I don't know. So, that's, that's tough. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think? So here's what I think. I'll, I'm curious to know what our overall perception of herpes stigma would be. If everyone who was sleeping with someone who has herpes were to disclose that they had sex with someone who has herpes, how would that look? How would the dynamic shift if this was something that every sexual encounter, um, if this was a topic of discussion that everyone had to have? Because I believe that one way that we get through dealing with the effects of stigma is if we just had an annual screening once a year whenever you go get tested for STIs herpes is on there and it's the same test for everybody then we can say yes you have herpes no you don't have herpes right and then take the precautions necessary to move forward uh, I believe that that'll be something that we get to see a lot more people who have it and a lot more people um, who don't have it 
being more informed about how many people have it. And it's a consistent test. People don't have to be concerned about, oh my God, was this the right test? Or am I sure? Is it definitely positive? There wouldn't be any confusion in reading the test. And then with people who don't have it, I think that they can almost become allies for those of us who have it because you've known someone, you've shared your body with someone, you have a connection with someone who has herpes and you know the stigma that comes with this and how it is dealt with or not dealt with and all of the different impacts that it can have on a person and all the impacts it could not have on a person or a relationship at all even. So for people who don't have herpes to be able to be allies, I think that it kind of parallels how um, the LGBT plus community has come about by when I was in middle school, people called people gay. Some stuff was gay. That wasn't cool. You were the F word, whatever. But once I got into adulthood, what ended up happening was I saw more and more people speaking out against that being like, hey, man, that's not cool. And while these were straight people, they had gay friends, they had lesbian friends, they had bisexual friends, and they stood up for them. So for us to be able to have people standing up for us who aren't necessarily in the community, that can even be something that empowers us because we'll be like, oh, there are people, you know, outside of this, the safety of this space of people who all have herpes or whatever. There are people out there who can support us in that transition of, or the translation of communication. Because as someone with herpes, I will say, yeah, you're less likely to get it from me because I know I have it. Whereas someone who doesn't have it is like, I'm not going to get it at all from you if I just don't have sex with you. Someone who's in the middle of that, who knows me and knows people who don't have it, is able to better communicate something along the lines of, well, I've slept with people who have herpes and I've yet to test positive for it. So here we are. So I, I, I think that there's something there. I'm not saying that people should do that. It was just more of a, a genuine curiosity of how that could look. Because essentially, when we talk about herpes disclosure, it's if you know you have herpes and you're going to have sex with someone, then it's likely that you're going to put them at risk for it. So tell them there's no conversation about how tricky of a virus this is to the point where if you've had sex a few times with or even one time with someone who has it, then it's possible that you could have gotten it. And if you go on and pass it on to another person, right, because you didn't know you had it you kind of like depending on where your headspace is you could feel really bad about that you could feel like oh my goodness i was just really ignorant or you can be like oh well wasn't my problem i didn't know and genuinely not have known but that person on the other side of that their life could be changed forever as a result of this and it was just a simple negligence of taking into consideration how the herpes virus works. So the more that we're able to talk about this and understand that it's just a tricky virus, I think the better off we'll be collectively. I That's such an interesting train of thought. And I mean, a few things come up, like when you're describing a world in which there are more like allies and the people that have slept with somebody that have herpes are really open about that and disclose that themselves. I mean, I feel like we would almost get to like 100% of the population quickly has either herpes or been with somebody with herpes. You realize that 
really quickly. And then I feel like that alone would do so much for the stigma to just sort of go away. Cause it's really sad when you think about the fact that it's the stigma that is the cause of people's mental health problems upon diagnosis. It's, it's not usually the symptoms themselves. It's like the stigma associated with it. So I feel like that would do a world, a world of difference um, for, for the stigma. And that would be a really beautiful society that we would live in. And for, for the people like this guy that I'm seeing now, when I learned that he did disclose without me having to push him to or tell him why, that is a beautiful person. Like he's a good person. And that I, I realized there, there's going to be obviously different types of people out there, but it made me respect him even more. And I think that word ally is a really interesting choice of word because it did feel like he was also standing up for me not just looking out for other people that he's involved with sexually, but really standing up for me. Um, I did feel like that. I didn't really put that, I didn't really make that connection until you, you use that word. Um, I know that with my diagnosis, I've a lot of, when you bring up the standardized test too, we totally need something like that. There's all like, there's the IgG, there's the IgM tests, and then you have medical professionals that tell you and my friends, have, most of my friends have decided to go get screened and ask for the HSV test because you have to ask for it. But then the, the medical provider can give you the wrong one. I've asked for it plenty of times in the past. I thought I was getting my negative HSV two tests and one every single year when I went and I come to find out once I actually got diagnosed and my doctor said, you could have had this for 10 years and you didn't know about it. I'm like, I've been getting tested. Like regularly, my, my last test was just a couple months before. How is this possible? They looked back and they, they were giving me the IgG test to test for active infection with antibodies instead of IgG or something. I, don't, I know I'm just kind of confusing people, so I'm not a medical professional, don't listen to me. But they were giving me the wrong test all along. So I actually thought I was going way above and beyond most people with their STI screening and my knowledge of herpes that I had before I even got diagnosed. I thought I was doing everything right, and I still was getting negative tests when I probably did have it because they were giving me the wrong test. And then you've got the medical professionals say that say, well, it's only 50% accurate, so what's the point anyway? Um, and my friends are experiencing this because they're all kind of going through this, and they're reporting back. And one of uh, one of my best friend's doctor, she, she said to her, well, everybody has it anyway, so why do you care? And like, how do you navigate this when you get mis mixed messages from medical providers and when I tell people about the complexities about the virus, I, I'm not like talking about it all the time, but with my close friends, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them about how nuanced and complex and uh, like just unknown it is. Um, and, and they're like, how do people not know this? Like, why is there not more done? And I sort of thought about that. I'm like, if this is so common and this is so stigmatized, why is there not like better information just more readily available out there? And my thought was, I'm hmm. curious to hear your opinion. My thought was that we need to make the mental health tie because that's the issue. But otherwise, it's a skin condition that doesn't actually physically hurt anybody. It doesn't put it doesn't get them higher risk for anything else. It's not really a medical problem that you have to deal with. Um, I, I don't want to diminish people that do have to deal with medically, but you, you know what I mean. Like it's the stigma that's the bad part about it. And the reason that there's probably not a lot of research on the, the physical medical side of it is because it's just a skin condition that at the end of the day, like isn't really 
hurting people's bodies, it's hurting people's minds more so. Yeah. My general response to that is that so many people talk about herpes, but no one's talking to people who have herpes about herpes. You know, there's not a lot of that type of conversation going on. The conversations about herpes are about herpes and it's not about the people who have herpes. Right. And that's where the mental health piece comes in. Sexual health is mental health. Think about the parallels of talking about boundaries and talking about consent, identifying um, abuse and abusers and being able to ask for what you need and say no. That applies not just sexually, but to life in general and being able to manage and navigate relationships, period. So when we start talking to people who have herpes more, I believe we get more consistent information because when the only people that um, healthcare providers talk to with herpes are the people that they're typically giving a diagnosis to. And then they see them again when they need a prescription or they don't see them anymore at all. Right. So where is the information coming from? It has to come from us because otherwise we're not going to have it. And our experiences are the ones that carry the value, that carry the uh, the accurate information because we're being told things that just simply aren't true uh, for everyone. Let me say that, for instance, um, People say people's behaviors don't change after their diagnosis. I think that was something that the CDC says. So why bother testing people and giving them that information? Everyone that I've talked to has said that their sex life has changed. There might have been one person and uh, the only reason that theirs didn't change was because they didn't have a sex life prior to their diagnosis to compare it to. They got diagnosed or they had sex with one person one time, ended up with herpes and bam. That was that's what their sex life is or became. So that's the only outlier that I've come across in that scenario. Oh, I thought you were gonna say something. You look, <laughs> you look like you're just kind of like dazed, just on doubt. <laughs> no, no, I was just taking it all in. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's totally true. All that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, we're at the end of this. If you have anything else that you want to leave us with um, or anything else that you feel like you want to share, you said you're about a year into your diagnosis. Um, anything that you have for someone who might be about a year into their own diagnosis? Uh, just I hope that anybody that's in my same situation diagnosis-wise has had the opportunity to at least start to reconnect with yourself and your body and and maybe hopefully put yourself out there and had a had a couple disclosure experiences um and i think the more that we do it the more we used to we used to it we get the more we can you know change our figure out really what what works for us um i'm excited um for my not (laughs) well of course i'm excited for my, my journey because i will i know that i am going to be somebody who does a lot of disclosure um, I just, that's my lifestyle. And now that I am getting more comfortable with it and I've reconnected to myself, I will be doing a lot more. Um, and I'd be happy to share more polyamorous, bisexual, <laughs> kinky disclosures. Um, I'm hoping that it works out for me, but I'm also prepared to have, you know, some folks not really comfortable with it. And I'll just need to, I'll need to work through that when that happens. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for your time, Lauren. I appreciate you being here and sharing your experiences, your perspective, and bringing that onto this podcast. Thank you, Courtney, and thank you so much for everything that you do. I cannot tell you how important it was for me to get connected to your platform a year ago. Thank you. Wait, it took a year? We'll talk about that after this. <laughs> All right. Uh, remember that survey, you can link to it in the show notes. If you haven't taken it already, if you have taken it, you can go ahead and go out, get up out of here. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I want to touch on before I close this out is how important it was for you to reconnect with your body. And I found that movement has been something useful for me to be able to do that, whether it be physical movement or just the movement of energy through my body and emotions, feeling them and then giving them an outlet for release. So uh, I took a 200 hour yoga teacher training. I do not yet feel comfortable calling myself a yoga teacher. So I enrolled in a 300 hour teacher training so that I can hold true to the roots of the culture and not be one of those people out here just appropriating it or whatever. Um, but for now, I am calling this mindful movement where I'm going to be teaching online uh, movement classes that has a lot of what I'm learning in my yoga teacher training incorporated uh, until I'm comfortable with calling it yoga. But the overall theme here is reconnecting to the body. I hadn't realized for myself that I was disconnected from my own body until I experienced what being connected to my body felt like. And that happened over years of just consistent movement through uh, different yoga practices with various teachers. So I want to extend that to people. Um, so basically, it'll be movement classes for therapy that look like yoga, but may not have the Hindu language. Um, but I, I want to incorporate that. So as I learn and grow and uh, incorporate that into my own practices, I am going to do my best to offer that to people um, as a form of support. Um, especially if you're someone who might be in therapy or therapy isn't working for. Like, I know that yoga has been a useful resource for me reconnecting to my body. So um, I want to offer that to you. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, share this podcast and um, all of its resources. If you want to donate, visit www.spfpp.org and you can make a donation today to support someone's journey into connecting with a mental health professional. Till next time, stay sex positive.